My deep appreciation of theater history was instilled in me by Tom Empey, a college mentor to me and hundreds of others. While teaching Greek theater terms, he would grab the fabric of his slacks and say, You see these pants? Euripides, Eumenides making light of content that could be considered rather dry and stuffy while still maintaining respect for the art, which is what I want to do with this podcast. For each episode, I invite a guest from the many paths my theater career has taken me down. I give my guests no idea what we'll be talking about, but they know we're going to find an outrageous story about theater history and perhaps get a better understanding about why we're still doing it after all these years. So welcome to Euripides Humanities, and I am your host, Aaron Odom. Humanidites, this is Aaron Odom from Trident Theater bringing you another episode of Euripides, Eumenides, a theater history podcast. It's good to be back here on the flip side of Trident's annual production of the Rocky Horror Picture Show, and what a show it was. Tons of laughs, tons of callbacks, tons of costumes, and just plain oodles of sexiness. I'll share a little bit of footage from the show and of the crowd on my Instagram page for Euripides Humanities. It was really something. The Rocky Horror Group this year was particularly impressive in that they exuded a lot of confidence, which, I'll be honest with you, doesn't always present itself each year. I know that sounds surprising, as you'd think you'd have to be pretty confident to get on stage and do what those characters are supposed to do. So... Maybe we'll get this cast on this program this year to talk about the experience. I mean, Rocky Horror is a part of theater history. It's going to be 50 in two years. But I digress. All that aside, I've got such a great episode for you today. I was recently contacted by a publicist for Chicago-based author Susan Kaysen. Susan has a new book coming out about Bernadine Schold Fritz, an incredibly influential woman in 1930s Shanghai. The book is called Bernadine's Shanghai Salon, and it will be available wherever you buy your books on November 7th, 2023. If I were you, I'd go get it. You're only going to hear a story from part of the book in this episode. Now, as an American expatriate in Shanghai, Bernadine was essential to the creation of a collective culture of international artists, politicians, musicians, philosophers, etc., People who sought a place to share and grow big ideas. And that's just what Bernadine provided. We'll talk a lot about it in the episode, you'll see. But today's episode is quite new for me, as the format gets reversed and I get to be the guest on my own show. (laughs) Susan brought this fascinating story about Bernadine and theater to me, and I sat back and let her tell me the whole tale. Didn't do any research, didn't want to spoil it at all. I had no idea about how influential Bernardine had become, but I have a feeling Bernardine is going to steal your heart too. So here it is, Bernardine and Lady Precious Stream. Ah, Susan, this is just great to have you on the show. It's so fantastic to meet new people who have similar interests. But, you know, I I always am a little wary of that 
Because <laughs> your publicist reached out to me and said, okay, this sounds interesting. And then you and I met and obviously hit it off really, really well. So um glad to have you on the show. But um you've been writing for quite some time, it seems. And primarily up to this point, it seems like most of these have been about uh stories from Asia and China and stuff, right? Yeah, that's right. I lived in Hong Kong for most of my 20s. And <laughs> yeah. Um, it was mostly before the handover. So it was a British colony. And my first um, idea about writing was I had a coworker, we were working for a pub, um, an educational publisher. And she got a contract from I think it was Frommers or Fodor's one of those travel guides. And they wanted her to redo the Hong Kong guidebook. And she asked me to do it. And she basically dropped it. And the editor from England sent her an email and said, do you have a pulse? And I was getting really nervous because I wanted to write this with her and she would not respond. And so she ended up really, she did drop it. And that kind of put the, the, you know, the idea in my head, I was 26 years old that I wanted to write and I wanted to write about Hong Kong. So, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. cause there was so much going on then it was with, yeah. Like, yeah. So what is it about the nonfiction world that is kind of appealing to you? Well, I don't think I'm very creative, so. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. I mean, I'll be honest, you know, I have written things, not many things, but at the same time, here I am on a, a theater history podcast running it. And, you know, it is my job simply like yours to just find the stories and tell them in a way that's engaging. But you're here today with a story from your new book, Bernadine's Shanghai Salon. Right. And and here's, okay, listeners, I'm so excited about this. I didn't have to do the prep on this one. Susan wrote a whole book <laughs> about this. And there is a very specific part of this person's life that involves theater. So today I get to be the one that the story is told to. Susan's going to tell me a fascinating story. And I have, here's my disclaimer, I have purposefully kept away from this story. Uh, Susan's publicist sent me a little blurb. And as soon as I started reading it, I went, oh, nope, stop. We got a great idea. She can just tell me this story. So I don't know anything. I don't know anything. But um, so the book is out November 7th. Is that right? Yes, November 7th. Yeah. Yep. And people can get it anywhere. You can get your books. You can get it on Amazon, Audible, if you prefer an independent bookseller. If they don't have it right away, they can order it. But if you are going to do that, Susan has her official pen name as Susan Blumberg Kaysen. Right, so, right. So that's how you find it. But uh, I know her as Susan Kaysen. So, but. <laughs> but without any further ado, Susan, hit me with this story. Okay, I can't wait. well, thank you so much, Aaron, for having me on today. I'm so Oh, man. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I can't wait. I can't wait. I'm I'm really excited to speak about Bernadine Zold Fritz. That was her for her full name. She was born Bernadine Zold, and her last and fourth husband was named Chester Fritz. So she was always known known as Bernadine Zold Fritz without a hyphen. I have a hyphen, but she did not. Yeah. Um, <laughs> wait, I gotta stop you there already, just because I'm. Ah, oh, I've covered it so many times on the show before. Uh, I think it was in the Rex Harrison episode. We had a woman who was 28 on her fourth husband. Uh, Elizabeth Taylor 
you know, a, a reigning champ. What? What? Didn't she have seven, seven or eight? Seven, I think. But Mickey, oh, Mickey, Mickey Rooney had a lot too. Didn't he? Oh, Mickey's- that's right. That's right. I don't know. Maybe it was something about this time. <laughs> I mean, yeah, people get picked off. You know, that you have a lot of a lot of epidemics going through. <laughs> and of course, you know, we're talking about. Uh, I think it's the 1910s. We're talking about, right? Um. Yeah. Her first marriage was around 1914, 1913, I think. Yeah. Oh, her, my daughter, gosh. her daughter was born in 1915. Mm-hmm. But she had been married. It was, and she was a teenager. But she had been married like fifteen months before her daughter was born. So it wasn't. Whoa. It wasn't a shotgun marriage at all. No, no. But a- you can hear kind of that expectation of the time. If you're young, you need to get married, and if you get married, you need to have children, and that's just the way it goes. Oh, right. Right. Okay. But she only she only had one child, so I guess in the way that went was not good. So it was good that. Uh, she just yeah. Yeah. Okay. So Bernadine um, Fritz. Fritz yes. is the fourth fourth husband's name. Okay. The fourth husband, yes. And <laughs> she had a theater in Shanghai in the 1930s. So that's what I want to talk about mostly. But I think oh, yeah. it's best to go back to her origins because that shows how she got into the theater. Yeah, and okay. That happened to be in a town called Peoria, Illinois. Oh, have, yeah. have you have you ever heard of Peoria? Yes, yes. <laughs> I know somebody who uh, is originally from Peoria and likes to point out that nobody's from Peoria. Bernadine <laughs> <laughs> well, was, right? Yeah. <laughs> and, um, you know, I've been there twice, and I, I kind of compare it to, like, a small Milwaukee. I don't know. Oh, okay. It seems the same. Like, it's a little hilly. It has the same type of architecture. Um, Chicago doesn't because we had a fire. So yeah, right. All that, all that architecture was gone. Um, right, right. But it was pretty bustling around the turn of the last century. And her parents settled there from Hungary in 1890. They were- Whoa, so she was first generation. Okay. Yes, yes, like barely. Yeah. Yeah, she was born in 1896. So it was six years after her parents moved from somewhere in Hungary to Peoria. Hmm. And she had had an older sister um, and then two younger siblings. And- her parents are both Hungarian Jewish, um, and her father, yeah, <laughs> they, were, they were escaping, you know. Uh, yes, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I mean, you know, that's uh, a little close to news today, but yes. Right, right, exactly, <laughs> exactly. I didn't think this would have any relevance, but I guess it does. So it today. Sure does. <laughs> okay, so they 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 got over here to Peoria. Okay, Peoria, because the father had relatives in in um, in Peoria. Oh, and, okay. Um, and the reason I mentioned the siblings is because all of them went into the theater as adults in one way or another, which huh. is really interesting because they were children of immigrants. And right. There's not a ton of money, you know, then no. and now in in theater, so. Yeah, I felt I felt like that was pretty interesting. And at home, when the kids were young, they would put on plays and skits, but they also created their costumes and set design and makeup. And when she, yeah, so it was a good, um, you know, a pretty solid self-taught theater education when they were. Can I ask this? Yeah, there is an episode that I have just kind of kept on the back burner for a while, and it is all about shadow puppet theaters. 
And there was like in, I want to say it's Hungary and Poland, there was a specific type of, it was almost like a Punch and Judy kind of, (laughs) kind of shadow puppet theater. I mean, the, the, I couldn't even begin to pronounce the names of these characters. And I found out about these. I, I was a testing examiner for, um, you know, like a a, a college credit program uh, for theater kids in high school. And uh, I can't even tell you how many kids did presentations on shadow puppet theaters all over the world. So I'm just like, I'm wondering if these kids from Hungary, like, did any of that? Did they do any of that? You know, I, that's such a good question. I don't know, but later on, she did work with puppetry. And oh my only, god! Yeah, I know. <laughs> and the only time I've ever really heard of that was from Asia because I went to mm-hmm, Bali mm-hmm. with my mother when I was twenty three, and or no, I was twenty. Um, I've gone to like the best places with my mother, so yeah, <laughs> <laughs> Bali and yeah, um, and so we saw we saw shadow puppets there. Yeah. Bali. Yeah, like yeah. It, it's all over Malaysia. There's some in Thailand, uh, yeah. and it, it's incredibly prolific. And like the 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 craftsmanship that goes into it, like some of the the cowhide that is cured is cured for something like seven to nine years before they actually like cut the puppets out of it. It's wow. it's why yeah, yeah it's wild. Anyway, that's forthcoming. I have no idea. Movies, I know. Isn't it something? Oh, That's, uh, yeah, it's all like I feel like everything's like interconnected. So, right? uh, so all the siblings are doing theater in the house and everything. Okay. Yes, and then the family picks up and moves to Gary, Indiana, when <laughs> Bernardine is twelve. As you do. <laughs> right, and so Gary then was was pretty much a suburb of Chicago. So at that point, oh, okay, yep, there were a lot. There was this this train is still there. It's called the South Shore Line, and it goes from Gary right to downtown Chicago. And so Bernadine married her first time in Gary and she took that train, that South Shore line into Chicago and acted in a theater company called the Little Theater. Mm, Okay. So while she was acting at the Little Theater, she also had her first and only daughter. um, Mm. Oh yeah, because it was like 15 months after she married. Okay. Yes. And so that was a that was one of the reasons she got divorced was because her husband didn't like that she had run off to the theater. Oh my God. I know. It was, but her parents were in Gary, so they took care of the daughter. Her mm-hmm. husband was a lawyer. And oh, and I, and I interrupted you. What's it, what was the daughter's name? Rosemary. Rosemary. Okay. Anyway, so she um was acting at the little theater, and this theater turned out to become the predecessor of Off Broadway. Whoa. And yeah. So it um that's so this was before off Broadway and then the little theaters popped up all over the US. They were in towns like Omaha. Yes. Yeah, yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. Dallas and I think Denver, but they also there were a bunch in London and Berlin in the mm-hmm. 30s. Yeah, everybody was just coming up with their own little groups and their own little ideas. Uh, I remember that. Like, I remember there was so, so, so much in all of my theater degrees talk about the Provincetown players and yes, how, yes. yeah, and how influential they were. But it's, it, but it's like Provincetown was just one of, you know, dozens of them that just popped up all over the country and all over Europe. Uh, and I would assume all over the world, but you know, when you think about Western theater, that's kind of what we're thinking about there. Right. So 
what I read about this Chicago Little Theater was they were the first to produce plays by Henrik Ibsen and George Bernard Shaw in the U.S. So that, <laughs> that hadn't been, because what I understand is theater in New York was becoming more commercialized and the Chicago yeah. Little Theater wanted to do these these other ones. And they also started viewing puppetry as an art form. And I think they were the, what I read was they were the first ones in the U.S. to view puppetry as an art form. Oh, so this wow. This was like 1913 to 1917 or so. Oh, wow. Okay. Cool. Um, so there's our tie-in to puppetry. Um, yeah, right. <laughs> come back, it comes back in Shanghai. Um, so the, the building where the Little Theater was housed is still there. It's called the Fine Arts Building. And it's one of what? my favorites. It's one of my favorites in Chicago. Um, it's claim to fame now is that it still has an elevator operator. What? Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's so cool. <laughs> but it's not, it's not going to last. Uh, there's, there's articles that oh. say it's going to be phased out. Cause there's like a, I think like four or five elevators in that building, but there's only one operator. So it's pretty inefficient. You have to wait for that one. Oh, so <laughs> that person has to bounce back and forth between. <laughs> it's not self-service. Yeah. No, no. Oh, yeah. man. That's so, that's crazy. Interesting though. <laughs> I know. I know. So I love it. I mean, I, you know, it's, I don't know how they're going to ha have people do this on their own because it's that type where you have to pull the metal gate and then there's these doors that go, uh, you know, from up to down and uh, top to bottom. And then they crank, you know, they're going to have to, um you're gonna have to be trained yeah that does seem very um uh cart before the horse yes 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 <laughs> we'll eliminate the one person who knows how to do the job and just expect all of these bystanders to just pick it up right 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 <laughs> but um as a side note i want to jump a little bit to shanghai because mm. um i just mentioned george bernard shaw and bernardine would actually meet him what yes in 1933 and there was, um, he went around Asia in 1933, 1932, because his wife wanted to see the world before she couldn't. And he had absolutely no interest in this. He yeah. was in his late seventies. Yeah, I was going to say, he's getting yeah, older there, yeah. He didn't want to go. And so Bernadine had connections in the newspaper world in Chicago. So she wrote into the Chicago Daily Tribune about this meeting with George Bernard Shaw. And she wasn't talking about herself, but she quotes from him. And I, this is one of my favorite quotes in the, in the book. She said that a guest at the party, and she didn't know who it was, or she didn't, she didn't name this person, said to George Bernard Shaw, you don't know how lucky you are to see the sun in Shanghai at this season. And then Shaw replies, hmm. you don't know how lucky the sun is to see Mr. Shaw in Shanghai. <laughs> At any season. <laughs> that sounds so him. Oh my God. I got to see a production of his misalliance in Minneapolis like 20 years ago. <laughs> the production was so well done and so well thought out and so over my head as, you know, a, a burgeoning college student. But, um, you know, I had no idea what Shaw was. I had read Importance of Being Earnest, and I, I appreciated it for what it was. I thought it was hilarious, but I didn't fully get it. And so seeing Miss Alliance, the director actually got this piece of public domain film footage that 
was Shaw basically, I, I, I don't know the setup of it, but it seemed like it was a press conference. And, you know, everybody was making these big deals about, ooh, Shaw is here. Shaw's, it seemed like, you know, because his work was so controversial, I have a whole episode on a guy basically like just trying to censor his works. He he held, he was at this press conference, and I'm going to be paraphrasing here, but he's like, well, ladies and gentlemen, you're about to see George Bernard Shaw do something you've never actually seen George Bernard Shaw do before. And he stood there for a moment, and then he slowly turned in a circle and then said, thank you very much, and left. <laughs> Making fun of the whole hubbub of, oh, Shaw's here, Shaw's here. <laughs> That's too funny. <laughs> and they played that before the beginning of the movie or be, beginning of the play. And you're like, okay, I guess this is what we're in for. <laughs> but Mike, the, the sun is happy to see me. <laughs> at, any, at any season, not just at season. any season, <laughs> not just now. <laughs> oh, Shaw. I know. So back to Chicago, the um, unfortunately, the Little Theater closed in 1917 because of World War One. I'm uh, guessing yeah. there was uh, finance issues. So it was it was really a shame. But these others that I mentioned around the country continued and in, in London and Berlin. And um, so Bernadine turned to journalism. She was very, you know, <laughs> adaptable. And she divorced her first husband, married again in Chicago and then divorced again. And then in the early 1920s, she moved to New York and she worked as a journalist there and she divorced again. So this time, by the what, third What is going on? <laughs> um, I don't like your toothpaste. We're done. <laughs> well, I think like women had to marry if they were going to date. There wasn't this, I mean, there were some that were very ahead of their times and they didn't marry, but I think she was really traditional and she believed in marriage. And she felt like she needed that piece of paper to kind of make this relationship legitimate. I I think she was caught oh. between two worlds. Okay. Um, but then when things didn't go well, she had enough, you know, it took a while sometimes, but she had enough, um, I don't yeah. know. Yeah, like enough in her to leave. So yeah. um, she was 29, though, by her third divorce. <laughs> okay. Okay. So yeah. in New York, divorced thrice. All right. Right. And then the the month she gets divorced in New York, she moves to Paris with her daughter, Rosemary. Whoa. Okay. Yeah. So this is like, this is like the, um, uh, the lost generation that Gertrude Stein talks about. She, she coined this term of these artists or writers, whatever that grew up, that came of age during world war one. And they ended up in Paris. So people like huh. Hemingway and F. Scott Fitzgerald. Oh, and these were, yep. Mm -hmm. These were all her friends. What? And she was friends. <laughs> she actually met Hemingway at the Fine Arts Building in Chicago because he was a poet and was just starting into journalism. And this poetry journal had an office at the Fine Arts Theater, or the Fine Arts Building. So yeah. she became friends with Hemingway before he went to Paris. And she writes in her vignettes or her unpublished memoirs that the morning that Hemingway asked his first wife, Hadley, for a divorce, Hadley rushed off to Bernadine's apartment in Paris. What? She was like, her hair was all disheveled. Her blouse wasn't buttoned correctly. So there was like one button that was like too high or, you know, like, and there was- Yeah, like, right, yeah. right. Something's wrong. Yeah. She She left the house in a rush. And her eyes were red and puffy and she she couldn't talk. She was so distraught. 
And Bernadine finally got it out of her that um, Hemingway had asked her for a divorce. So that was, you know, Bernadine's kind of claim to fame. Uh, my mother just recently got a, a, a rescue cat. It's polydactyl, nice. which means it has that extra thumb on each front foot. I don't know if it's on the back feet as well. But here's another interesting little factoid. Hemingway would often come to this town that I'm in, Sheridan, Wyoming, and go park up in the mountains at a dude ranch and stay in a cabin. And that's where he would write some things. Wow. I can't remember. It's one of his major works that he wrote part of. I want to say it's For Whom the Bell Tolls. But yes. um, Wow, that's cool. Yeah. But he really loved polydactyl cats. Oh, wow. Wow. (laughs) So... (laughs) And my mother is a huge Hemingway fan. Uh, I recently just got her a big book for Christmas and she tore through it. And, and so. <laughs> what's, what, but, what's the cat's name? Did she name it after? Uh, no, actually, uh, she kept the name from the uh, shelter. It's called Rio. But my mother just loves to think that uh, she has a cat that was in the lineage that <laughs> must have been because Hemingway brought polydactyl cats here. <laughs> that is too funny anyway yeah that's that's because i read about his cats in in havana because he had that oh yeah Mm -hmm. but um there was another thing in bernadine's vignettes that i don't write about in the book this was how i originally started the book but i i had to take it out because of time but he called bernadine one afternoon or morning and said she had to meet him at this cafe and when he gets when she gets there he's got this whole stack of papers and he reads to her from the Torrance of Spring, which is his first, mm-hmm. I, think I have it right here. Um, it was his first long work. So it's mm-hmm. a novella and it's a mockery of their their mutual friend, Sherwood Anderson, who was <laughs> from Chicago or was here in Chicago while they were both here. And Bernadine was so offended because she loved Sherwood Anderson and, <laughs> and, and Hemingway was mocking him. It was like a, it was mm-hmm. a satire. So I think... I think it was F. Scott Fitzgerald said it was like one of the best satires he'd ever read, but Bernadine did not take it well. And so, um, <sighs> but she sat there while he was reading this novella to her. So I did, I did buy the book. Wow. It's, in, it's in the public domain. So that was going to be my opening of the book, but I had to, I had to cut out that backstory. So we're, yeah. we're basically just in Shanghai. There's a wow. little bit. Yeah. Well, Susan, I've I've got a question for you because this is just fascinating to me that you just keep rolling off these names. Like, what was it about Bernadine that made her so magnetic? Uh, all of these big personalities, Shaw's, Fitzgerald, Hemingway, are all just in her inner circle. What was it about Bernadine? You know, I think it was like timing. She was in the right place at the right time. I've, I've talked to her living relatives who are, you know, closer to my age, but they're they're cousins of hers. They're Mm -hmm. the ones that gave me a lot of her writing. And one of her cousins told me that Bernadine was actually quite shy naturally, but she was very extroverted when she was around other people. It was her way of like dealing, I guess, with other people. So she had this she was very magnetic and she had this personality that just drew people into her. I think yeah. she was a type of person that people would trust with their stories. And she always seemed, she connected people. She loved bringing people together. So I think people felt like they were getting something out of this, this friendship too. But with the letters I found, people wrote to her for decades. It wasn't like they were using her. They, they didn't take her seriously. 
she has um she has letters from a whole slew of you know famous people that go that go way beyond when they first met. And when she was in New York, she used to go to the Algonquin Roundtable, which was a mm-hmm. a lunch meeting at the Algonquin Hotel. And there was a husband, wife, Harold Ross and Jane Grant, that started the New Yorker magazine. <laughs> okay. From, from this roundtable. Like they kind of like devised it from that. And that was 1925 when Bernadine went to Paris. So she started writing for the New Yorker during its yeah, inaugural there year. Go. There she- we go. But she was kind of a rambler in her talking and her writing. So she only wrote a couple <laughs> articles and then they kind of, I think they, you know, they didn't take it. <laughs> but still, the foot was in the door. Oh, wow. It was. Okay. It, yeah. was it was. And um, so Paris, it was the only place she ever lived where she wasn't married. And she wanted to become a writer there. And it just didn't happen. Mm. These New Yorker articles didn't last she wrote for a magazine called arts and decoration not for very long and she had a friend there who was an american like her who had a gazillion dollars because her name was barbara harrison and her dad was a politician from new york called francis burton harrison and his he has two things that he's famous for one is he introduced a bill to get the cocaine out of coca-cola and the heroin out of cough syrup and it worked that's right. Oh, and it it worked. Oh, he was the one. He was the one. <laughs> I love hearing those facts specifically. Like, like people don't understand. People don't understand. Like they might have heard that. Like I think we all might have heard the the story. Like, uh, yeah, you know, it's, there's a reason. It's Coca Cola because it right. had cocaine. It right. wasn't cocoa beans. It was cocaine. <laughs> And and yeah, yeah, cough syrup back then was no joke. No. <laughs> it makes I mean, NyQuil look like, you know, right. <laughs> like Kool-Aid. Right? <laughs> wow. Okay. So he was the one that got that taken care of. But yeah, He was okay. a congressperson from New York. And then he also oh. was, a, um, he was a governor of the Philippines when the Philippines was still a, a colony, which we oh, don't wow. really remember. And he was the governor, the ge- governor general of the Philippines that started talking about independence in a in a serious way. So he helped the Philippines gain independence. But Barbara's, oh. mo- yeah. So Barbara had all this money. Her mother was a railroad heiress and died in a car ah. accident when Barbara was young. There so, we go. Okay. So yeah. So when Bernadine was in in Paris, Barbara asked her to go on this trip. They called it around the world, but it wasn't. It was through the Middle East and Asia. So Barbara was going to fund oh, this. Geez. Yeah. So this was like 1928. And I'm assuming that sounds like it was a train trip. It was. Yes. It was a train and boat. Ah, okay. Yep. Yep. So they, so they, they did the train um, from Paris, I think to Istanbul and then, yep. which is part of the Orient Express. And then um, mm-hmm. they took a boat. They went to Egypt and Saudi Arabia and all these other places. <laughs> um that you probably couldn't go to today. And then they ended up, so Barbara was footing the bill for this. She was paying yeah. for everything. Sugar mama. Okay. Yes. And Bernadine had nothing to lose. Her daughter, Rosemary, of course. Was, was a teenager, early teens, probably 14, and was in a boarding school in Switzerland run by a protege of the dancer, Isadora Duncan, who was one of yeah. Bernadine's so, <laughs> oh <my> um, <laughs> it's fine just leave the kid it's good all right so this is like 
So she ended up not seeing Rosemary for about three years. This trip was 14 months. And when they got to Shanghai after a year, Bernadine met this silver broker from North Dakota, not too far from you, named Chester Fritz. So he became, Ah. that's how she got to Shanghai. And Mm -hmm. they they talked when they met, they laughed together. Uh, But, you know, he wasn't someone that she thought about after she and Barbara left Shanghai, and they went back through the Soviet Union. It was pretty new then, back mm-hmm. to Paris on the train. And when she gets back to Paris, she finds dozens of telegrams from Chester. Ooh. And he wants her to marry him. He's never met anyone like her. He can't live without her. Oh my God. And, <laughs> and how long were they together on this little trip? I mean, she met him, I don't know, for three weeks. Maybe they had okay, okay. for a few nights or something. I mean, there was, it was just like this someone you would, would meet on your travels. She had no clue that this is what he felt. <laughs> and I don't really think he even felt that way. He, he had, it was just hard in Shanghai at that time to meet someone. It was a lot of, you know, the, the, uh, yeah. Okay. Okay. And there from wasn't North a lot Dakota, of, yeah. yes. And there wasn't a lot of mixing between Chinese and, and Westerners or they call them. Oh, I bet not. Yeah. Okay. And then like, and then like the women he'd meet from America were usually there with husbands. So it wasn't. uh, And, um, and probably traveling as well. So. Right. You want want a long-term commitment kind of thing. Uh, You're in the wrong place there, Fritz. Right. (laughs) (laughs) He had been there for a decade at that point. So, Mm. so he, he, begged her to return and to Shanghai and marry him. And Bernadine's friends thought she had nothing to lose. So they kind of convinced her to go back uh, to Shanghai. And so she did. Well, yeah, I mean, okay. Still got the kid at school. Uh, Nothing's going on in Paris. Nothing else to lose. Nothing. And she liked Shanghai. She's, she was an adventurer and he was too. Mm -hmm. And she also was a romantic and i think she felt like this could be her chance to find that lasting love because she had it she was she was 33 only 33 years old and so you know now it's like people don't even get married till they're 43 so it's for the first time and you've you've got this guy who she was at least agreeable with who's rolling in money uh you just got a prince charming handed to you Okay. Right, right. Let's, she, let's go to Shanghai. <laughs> right. So she does. And this is where the book starts. So it starts when she's on this train. Oh my gosh, that was all the exposition. So, yes, okay. yes, yes. That was like four pages of, you know. So, <laughs> so you know, it's it's not a surprise. Chester wasn't the person that he advertised himself to be. And right away, he's aloof. He doesn't act like he just spent the last six months writing to her and begging her to marry him. So it's it's hard for huh. her. And yeah. she's in this, this city. Shanghai at the time was almost 4 million people. That was really, really big at that time. Whoa, yeah. That is huge at that time. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, now it's like 30 million. But it's, yeah. uh, <laughs> it's it was it was huge. And. He didn't know anybody there. And it was it was hard and it was lonely because he spent all of his time either at work or in he was at the stables with his horses and he loved <laughs> he loved riding. He would be great in Wyoming. Yeah. He, he was the captain of the US polo team. And 
Okay. Bernadine was afraid of horses, but she really tried to make an effort to meet him at his level. So she took lessons, riding lessons, not polo lessons. And yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, did, it didn't work. She didn't like it. And oh. she, she just felt like it wasn't her. And she was still scared of it, you know, scared of horses. So they ended up yeah. living these separate lives. And the year that she moved there, he started an investment mm. firm with a couple of, of partners. So he was super busy with that. And it was really hard to meet friends there. Oh, the poor thing. Like, that's it all was, I'm thinking about is like okay. she she had that big welled up heart that was just like, oh, I'm going to be fulfilled. I found my 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 true calling and my one great love. And pardon me, you know, it just sounds like the guy just had a couple lonely nights and and just <laughs> wrote a ton of telegrams over a bottle of whiskey and she gets there he's like oh good they worked okay yeah well you right. can stay in my house ah i know and he had okay. never been married before so he was I, 37 I, don't like, I know i don't like we, this fritz i don't like I don't this know. Fritz. i don't like him either so um probably of all the ex-husbands he was my least favorite but <laughs> Okay, I don't feel like I'm going to spoil this, but Bernadine doesn't stay with Jester. <laughs> I think we already covered that. And her love life is about the least interesting thing about her. I mean, come on. How in the world did she end up rubbing elbows with Hemingway and Fitzgerald? I love this. In a book I'm reading right now, the author inserted a quote from ancient Roman playwright Seneca. Luck is what happens when preparation meets opportunity. I don't know if this is entirely applicable to Bernadine, but if she hadn't known these literary greats at that time, she may not have been prepared to do what she did in Shanghai. You'll find out about that in the second half. So let's get back to Susan Kaysen and the rest of Bernadine and Lady Precious Stream. One of the other reasons that Shanghai was different than other cities where she had lived was because it was carved into these different foreign concessions. So it was, it's hard to explain now because we think of something as either being like colonial, like in the entirety or not, but it was just like a part of Shanghai was owned by the, by the French. Right. Okay. Yes. And um, so she and Chester live in this place called the French concession and every law is French. Right. So it's, it's all, it's all French. The names are French. Um, the laws are French. The police are French, but then there's this other concession called the international settlement that is administered at first by the u.s which we oh. never learned about this and the uk and then mm -hmm. by the time bernardine gets there there's this municipal council that has 14 different countries represented so it's mm. all they're all running it together in the interest of making tons of money so it's all yeah yeah okay and then there's a then there's a chinese city but chinese live in all these places so it's not it's not the French concession isn't just French people. I mean, there's Americans like Bernadine and Chester, but there's mm -hmm. also a lot of Chinese there. And there's Chinese in the international settlement and then in the in the Chinese areas, which are more poor. So it's it's very segregated. And the Chinese intellectuals and the foreign intellectuals don't meet together. They don't. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that yeah yeah i i've been i've been wanting to do 
episodes on Chinese theater and Japanese theater. And there are several, several like absolutely cool, rich histories with that. But from my background, my Western background, it's very difficult for me to wrap my head around some of that stuff. Sometimes Um, I can only imagine how that goes in politics. I can only right, imagine how it right. goes in any kind of trade or commerce or anything. Ugh, okay. I know. So it's, it's really. It, it's a huge city. It's split up into all these fenced off areas and nobody's really talking to each other. Right. Right. <laughs> Sound familiar, right? That's, so... that's it. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's very hard and she doesn't like this. She, she's mm-hmm. there to be in shanghai and to meet friends who are chinese and are from shanghai Mm -hmm. so luckily after a few years so you know it's three years of like just loneliness she starts to meet chinese intellectuals and that totally opens her whole world and they invite her to their homes they Mm -hmm. invite her out to dinner and they invite her to their friends homes that she hasn't met before and they talk about things like Chinese theater and Western theater and um, mm. and literature and she she really loves this and she yeah. wants to she wants to reciprocate she doesn't want to just be known as the person who tags along you know yeah so, yeah the, so she, oh, the wife of the sugar daddy who right. doesn't really have anything else to do but go rub elbows and go to coffee shops yeah okay got it Right. So she, this is her salon. So she opens her home to these new friends and their friends. And she soon has two rooms in her home packed with Chinese writers, artists, actors, and even politicians. So the mayor of Shanghai is there. There's a warlord who goes there. Um, Whoa. Yeah. (laughs) So, okay. So I need some help with this. Um, yes. So when you say it as a salon, what would you define a salon as? Like Gertrude Stein, what she had in Paris, mm-hmm. um, just a home meeting with people who are just coming together through the arts. And in Bernadette's oh, case, okay. she would invite, say, um, a musician and would yep. have the musician perform and then people would talk to the musician and they discuss in the the work. And the, the yes. thing is, you okay. have to have it be pretty close quarters because people have to hear and they have to be able mm-hmm. to discuss. And if you're spread out over, you know, many different rooms, it just doesn't work. That's more of like a dinner party or cocktail. Or right, a cocktail right, 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 right. So, like, do they do they have like a, a kitchen where they're just serving a little bit of this and that while people chew over ideas and stuff? Uh, yeah, because Chester hires 14 servants, which is kind of crazy. Oh, so, <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, and he likes this. He thinks it like gives him face, you know. Oh, of course face. it does. And it puts him in front of a bunch of people c- that can invest in his silver trade. Of yes. course it does. Like the mayor. Uh, yes, yes. I see you, Chester. <laughs> so it becomes like the hottest venue in the city. Everyone that comes through Shanghai who somebody hears about this. and. It's hard to picture this, but I actually was able to to go into a unit in this building when I was last in Shanghai in 2019. Oh, whoa. Okay, cool. So that was pretty cool. Um, My older son was studying there for a year in Shanghai. And so he was in an orchestra and they had one 
performance, May 13th, 2019. So mm. my youngest, my younger son, who was almost 10, and my mom and I went to see this one concert. And it sounds like such a splurge, and it's not something we would normally do. But you know, <laughs> a year later, the whole world would be locked down, right? In yeah, 2020. Right. So yeah. I was so and I didn't like get on a plane for four years after that. So I was so <laughs> glad I did, I did it. So my mom and my younger son and I took a cab to this building and it was a it was a Spanish revival two floor apartment building and it looked like something out of LA you know it was yeah okay the the, tie, the red tile roof and the stucco so mm-hmm. we mm-hmm. we get there and she this is her she has an apartment there and as soon as we see the front um the front door it's wide open mm-hmm so it's like an invitation, right? Hmm, yeah, right. Come on in. And this workman comes out. So my mom stays outside because, you know, it's been like cold in Chicago and we don't really get the sun for a long time. Um, so she's mm, out there mm-hmm. basking in the sun. And my younger son and I go in and we see on the ground floor, there's a unit that's open. And it looks like it's being turned into a little museum. There's display mm. cases and posters. And so it it it's in like the very like, early stages and I have a friend that lives around the corner and it has been turned into a museum to celebrate that little section of the French concession and Bernadine and Chester are like feature in a big poster about Bernadine's salon and Chester and his Mm. horses there's a picture of him on a horse Um, yeah 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 so they're they're putting this together and no one else is in the building so we walk up the stairs to the second floor oh yeah 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 and we see another unit that's open and there's no one in it and it's all empty, but it looks like it's been restored. Mm-hmm. And so nothing about it is modern. There's no kitchen yet. It's completely empty, but there's this, this metal work inside. And so we, we walk into it and we just, we see like the first two rooms where she had the salon and I could see like how that could happen. Like 150 people could fit in these two rooms and then they just keep going. Okay on and on and on and there's like little sunrooms to the side and there's this little like no window study that looks like a dungeon kind of like a yeah it was so we get to the end of this unit and i don't even know how to get back to the front because (laughs) it's not natural like way back Mm -hmm. and luckily Mm -hmm. my you know like you know how like kids have better you know <laughs> He's just got a better sense. He's been playing yes. so many video games. He knows yes. how to map. Okay, got it. So he led me back <laughs> to the to the front. And I'm so glad that I had that chance because now the building oh. has, you know, it's occupied now with um with people living there. And there is a salon space in that very unit that some um some Shanghai residents bought and they're turning it into this performance arts art space where people can do any type of you know reading or music or yes but but they want to have a link back to the 1930s and to celebrate bernadine's salon well i'm hearing that i'm hearing the layout and i'm hearing this the the architecture and i'm just thinking you know uh i don't know if you know this there are two artist residencies in this county that i live in and uh and there have come some of the best work that we have heard of that we had no idea had its origins here. And uh, I, I can imagine like, like I grew up here, but I also 
am, uh, I'm very at home in an urban setting as well. Mm -hmm. You know, I just kind of blend right into it. But I can imagine how somebody who has come from an urban setting would just like a couple weeks of just quiet. Yeah. And and maybe, maybe like I'm thinking about that room you described with no windows where they're like, I don't want to see anything. I just need to sit down and focus. But there are the other people who would like to sit in that sunroom and and get some nice get some nice color on their uh, on their cheeks and everything. And 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 that might inspire them. Oh, I love this. I love this. That's amazing. Yeah, it's so it's so cool. And I love that they're like celebrating her time there because that's yeah. you know, that's kind of justifies all this so I mean, there's, there's a part of this that sounds very gatsby like yes you know? well, she knew as yeah yeah you know, and, and this and, this is the carousel room and this is you know the fudge room and whatever <laughs> i love it but, but she she was pretty uncomfortable with 14 servants she didn't like that she in chicago huh. she had she had taught at a workers institute and so like her origins were more like you know workers rights and oh uh, uh, yeah 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 okay so it was hard it was but you know but there was food there i'm sure because mm -hmm. she always she always had she always had food um well you know and, i'm going to i'm going to put a yeah. link together there cuz i talked about the provincetown players and they were very very much for workers rights and and stuff like that and i would imagine a lot of those little theaters that you talk about did they were very left leaning at that time and really championed those kind of things so it wouldn't surprise me if some of her work at that little theater was very involved right. with that worker stuff yeah yes yes i'm sure and so this is jumping ahead way far, but <laughs> she was in the 1982 movie Reds that was Warren Beatty's. Reds? Yes. She was in Reds? Of course she was in Reds. Okay. All right. Well, this is, this is so wonderful. So this, I've seen it, I don't know, like five times. She's one of the witnesses. So there's like Henry Miller wow. and Rebecca West, but she never appears on screen. She's only a voiceover. And she knew... John Reed and the so Warren Beatty plays this this um publisher John Reed and mm. he goes to the Soviet Union when it's new and then dies there mm. but I think Louise Bryant was his wife and they I think were in Provincetown because wasn't Eugene O'Neill there yeah and there yeah was, there was that was Eugene O'Neill so Eugene O'Neill had this like affair with louise bryant when she was married to john reed but they had this like open <laughs> marriage and bernadine oh, okay. was friends bernadine <laughs> was friends with john reed and louise bryant so yep wow <laughs> wow <laughs> so she, she was in this but that was like right before she died um she died in 82 and the movie came out and it won the academy award that year yeah yeah up against a lot of good ones. So. Yeah, yeah. A lot of I'm, good. Just, I'm just thinking of that. Like that sounds so Hollywood to me. That sounds so Hollywood. And I'm sure Bernadine was absolutely wonderful. And she went, "Yes, this I'm. I'm very passionate about this. But let's bring up this thing where your friends were having affairs with people. And oh, you're gonna, you're still surviving. You're an expert. So we'll have you read the voiceover. Oh my god. Right, uh, right. let's let's bring up your personal trauma to uh make a buck and get you some uh some screen time right right it was a very it was a very quick voiceover i mean it was almost hard to know which one she was because there were so many of these witnesses oh, but funny. her her cousin in la told me which one she thought it was so mm -hmm. I, I think i i've heard her voice That's anyway funny. um so back to shanghai she, she she realized she needed more space because this salon 
was there was too many people and and they couldn't hear and they couldn't discuss because it was mm. just so crowded. So she decided to start a theater company and she modeled it after <laughs> the okay. Chicago Little Theater. Oh, so that's perfect. That's why yes. I had to talk about the Little Theater because now she has this International Arts Theater with the RE. They call it the IAT, International Arts Theater. Yeah. It has yeah. Everything in Shanghai had an acronym back then. So it was the IAT. And <laughs> it wasn't just a theater, but she, because she modeled it after the Little Theater, it had classes in stage makeup and set design and lighting. Oh, wow. And they did, they did puppetry and they had ballets mm-hmm. and lectures and concerts. So she wanted to recreate this type of, of theater in Shanghai. And you've got all of these intellectuals and politicians who are rubbing elbows and throwing ideas at this. Oh, I love this. I love this. And funding it. That's yes. Donors oh. Were, were, oh, I love this. And it was, and it was, it was almost like more Chinese um, actors involved in it than, than foreign. So it really was the place where Chinese and Westerners or foreigners, because um, they weren't all Westerners, got together. And that started in her salon. Huh. So she was she was a, oh, one of the wow. first people to to bring all these people together, and it also shows in the types of performances she did. And so the biggest play that she performed there was something that was a hit on the West End from 1934 to 1936 or seven. Whoa! And, okay, so it yeah. ran the single play for those three years. A thousand nights. and it was revolutionary because it was a chinese play and that hadn't happened yeah well first i mean that just wasn't done back then it just was not done uh but oh that and and and, wait okay so tell me it is a chinese play yeah so it was um it was called lady precious stream and there's been a number of books written about this because it's so fascinating, it was written by a Chinese playwright from China named mm-hmm. Yi Xiong. Xiong was his last name. So he was in England, he was called S.I. Xiong um, <laughs> because it was Shur is with the S and the I is yeah. just the letter I um, yeah. or E. So he was a professor in Beijing and a theater expert, but he was a British theater expert. And his <laughs> dream was to be produced on the West End. So in 1932, he and his wife sailed to London and he contacted everyone he knew of in the London theater scene, including our friend, George Bernard Shaw. Yep. Yep. Mm -hmm. And he hears back from many of them, but not Shaw. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not surprised by this at all. So he gets advice that's good and bad. The good news is these theater people in London are very enthusiastic about him, but they do not think he can write a play set in the English countryside like he wants to. They think the only way he can get produced there is to write a Chinese play. And at this time, it's the early 30s, and it's kind of becoming a fad there to have, you know, like Chinese restaurants with the the opium den setting. Right, yeah, yeah. There was that like a huge craze of oh, I just hate to say the word the Orient. Yes, and, yes, yes, yeah. yes, oh. yes, yes. And Anna Mae Wong was a big actress at that time, so she was acting in the U.S. and London and Europe. But it's also the height of this yellow face 
thing where white actors portray Mm -hmm. Asian characters with exaggerated makeup and they and costumes, and it's just awful. So that is the way (laughs) this play was produced on the West End. And it's really hard because it was the only way Shuri Shong could get it produced. Could get it produced. Yeah. Oh, that's, you you know, I have a very vested interest in like just watching how things become a little, you know, out of touch as they age. Yeah. But I think back to it, I did that episode on Rex Harrison. And so we have to talk about My Fair Lady. And to talk about My Fair Lady, you have to talk about Audrey Hepburn and her big role in Breakfast at Tiffany's. Oh, and everybody loves that movie and tries to forget about our friend Mickey Rooney. Rooney. (laughs) (laughs) Playing the Japanese character so offensively. It was was terrible. Oh, my God. That was the way that these plays were produced yep. and so the play itself was um fascinating and shuri shong did this all in six weeks and he took a lengthy peking opera mm-hmm. which normally would have lasted seven hours and mm-hmm. no 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 audience in london would ever sit through that no no i went to no. a play once that was like five hours and it was like torture yeah it was it was awful but um so he took it it was a seven hour play and he condensed it into two hours. So yep. he, took out, he took out the music and the singing. And the set design was just a simple living room with wooden chairs and some Chinese scrolls hanging in the background. And it was a, originally, it was, in, it involved polygamy. And, <sighs> and Shuri Shong knew that that would not go down well with, with British audiences. Because, <laughs> you know, they were so prim and proper that they, they couldn't right. deal with that. <laughs> <laughs> we want to respect the things about the Orient that only we find tasteful. Yes. I'm, mm-hmm. yep. And we're not doing that here. So, not doing that. So in this play, there was an aristocratic woman named, surprise, surprise, Lady Precious Dream. And uh-huh. she falls in love with the family gardener. Now, so she's aristocratic. But in the original opera, he's not a gardener. He's a beggar. Oh. So again, Shuri Shong has to give him a job because the British audiences wouldn't really take well to an aristocratic oh. woman falling for a man that didn't have a home. Well, let's so, bring that up about 70 years later with Phantom of the Opera, folks. I'm sorry. It's a stalker chasing a, a wealthy girl who is uh, 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 underage. Okay. Nah, I'm off my soapbox. No, it's like, this is so common, right? So her family is appalled and a war breaks out and the gardener husband runs off to join the army. Ah. And 18 years passes. But but Lady Precious Dream does not want to give up on her husband. She waits for the day that he comes back. But while the husband's gone at war, he meets and falls in love with a princess. Dang it. And... In the original, the two marry. So then now he's got two wives. He's got the the princess and he's got Lady Precious Dream. Oh, okay. So, and that's that's the polygamy section. Okay. Right. So he cuts that part out and he just makes them like together together, but not married. Okay. So so his side girl. Okay. Yes, yes. So right. after 18 years, the couple returns 
back to Lady Precious Stream, and the three of them live happily ever after. What? <laughs> it's supposed to show you shouldn't judge people because even though this guy has nothing, in the end, he has these two fancy women. And that's mm-hmm. like the humor of that. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. Of, the, of that time, right? So yeah. it it ran a thousand nights, like I said, for wow. future or current British prime ministers attended, like Chamberlain was there. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah, and, yeah. Um mm-hmm. what's his name? The guy in um good lord, who am I thinking? Um uh, uh Churchill, Neville Chamberlain. Oh, Churchill, yes. <laughs> yeah, that one. <laughs> Um, they all went to see it and they loved it but the problem was everyone was in yellow face and yeah bernadine wanted to do it the right way so she wrote to sherry shong and asked him if she could have permission to produce it in shanghai and she was going to do it correctly every actor was going to be chinese in it oh and she did it that way oh okay how long did it run three nights Three. <laughs> well, because but it happened. <laughs> and the thing is, like, it was only supposed to run for two nights, but it was they oh. too many people wanted to go, so she added another night. She had to find another theater because most of these actors had day jobs. They were they were amateurs. right, right. So there was someone who was a future university president. There were people who worked for petroleum companies. I mean, they had they had jobs they had to go to. Yeah, so yeah, yeah, yeah. It ran for three nights, but that was more than was expected, and people loved it. The audiences were Chinese; they were foreign. They they couldn't get enough of it, and they talked huh. about it for a, a long time. Shuri Shang did not go to that performance because oh. he felt like he felt like what's the point? Like sailing across you know the world just for like two nights that turn into three. So he oh, because he was still in London. Okay. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> okay, yes. got it. So he didn't he he never saw it. And it was, you know, it was too bad because I think that was probably the most successful production. Yeah. Because a year later in 1936, Broadway wanted to produce it. And, oh, whoa. And so Bernadine was friends with the producers there, Morris Guest and Lee Schubert. Schubert and Guest. Schubert. Mm-hmm. And she told them that they should hire Chinese actors to be in this play because that was the only way it was going to work. And oh. they, they, they tried to get her star lady precious dream, but that actress was, who was a real actress was going through a divorce. So she oh. couldn't, yeah, she couldn't leave Shanghai. So they ended up doing it all in yellow face and it ran. Oh. I okay. How long did it run? A hundred nights. Yeah. Okay. And yeah. their their most famous um, attendee was Eleanor Roosevelt, and she liked it. Oh, well, yes, she would. Yeah, ah, uh, of course that happened. And ah, uh, like there's there's part of that where I go, eh, I'll take the good with the bad because what they're trying to do is they heard about this hit thing in Shanghai where all of these intellectuals and all of these politicians and all of these you know people who make things run saw it loved it uh endorsed it but there's also the dark flip side to that coin where they know it ran for a thousand performances in the west end so it's a good seller uh, and it it didn't work in new york no that's so no. really interesting that you know it was still it was still going on in the west end and it didn't work there and bernadine you know blames guest and schubert for not 
not casting Chinese actors. And, you know, this was like 1996. Uh, <laughs> I bet that wasn't the reason in New York. Right. right. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think they would have cared. Now, uh, let's see, the 30s, we had just gone through right. yellow journalism and hating on the people yeah. that built our railroads, even though they built our railroads. Right, 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 <laughs> right. I mean, it took... Um, it took decades and decades for a movie like the Joy Luck Club to have an all oh, yeah. cast. So that was decades and decades after. Yeah. And then, um, so that's like kind of why I wanted to talk about Lady Precious Stream, because I feel like that is, it's, it's something that we still kind of encounter in Hollywood and in plays where there'll be an Asian character that producers will change into white, a white yeah. character, because they'll think that it's more, appetizing to audiences for some reason right, and i'm not right. really sure why that's still happening but it, but it is uh it's it's so awkward like that is a huge discussion piece in the world of theater right now in in that you have you have so much about identity that right. is you know it it's essential i mean i've heard people who will see like the new amazon lord of the rings series they watched it a little bit and then they saw a black dwarf and they went, Nope. And and I'm like, why? They're like, because this fantasy is written from a European standpoint. Well, and I went, I mean, I see your point, but inclusion, please. Like, just, just give it a shot. Give it a shot. But on the other hand, like you're saying, um, this is the way I look at it. When a play does not specifically identify a person, by race, by sexual identity, by gender identity, I go, it could be played by anybody. It could, right, it right. Could. You know, I mean, if uh, on, on uh, obviously, if the person's name is Paul, you're like, okay, so that has to be somebody who is representing themselves as a man and, and, and uh, you know, something like that. But, I mean, there are times when it says, um, you know, this character is an African-American from Philadelphia. And you're like, oh, okay. So that has a lot of undertones to it. Um, and and, and you got to think about what's the black experience in Philadelphia. And, and oh, okay, when was this person born? When was this written? So, you know, there's a lot to think about in that. So when, yeah, when, when they do that, when you're like, oh, let's make this character white because, well, I don't think people will mind. Like, I know, Arr! I know. I know it's, it's, it's really upsetting. And yeah, she, I, you know, she, I use that because I feel like she, that example, cause she was ahead of her time and, and saw, yeah. saw that it, it's good to, you know, give representation. Uh, on that point too, though, I think there's something about, you know, striking when the iron's hot. I mean, she had built this culture, this community of people who were trying to just identify what it meant to be from Shanghai. You know, yeah. and what it meant to be from Shanghai is representing those people in that experience with a play from somebody uh, of their native land who's trying to right. tell a story of their native land, regardless of whether or not he loved British theater and lived in London and didn't come see the show. Right. Uh, <laughs> but I but that's the thing where I'm like, in my experience, I've said this on the show several times, you have to do theater for the community you're in. Well, kind of like on the same lines, um, the West End production was actually appreciated 
by none mm-hmm. other than George Bernard Shaw, because when he had his 80th birthday, uh-huh. he invited Cherie Shong to do, um, to speak about Lady Precious Dream. So even oh. though, even though he didn't contact Cherie Shong when he got to London and you yeah. know, ignored him, he kind of picked up on this, you know, the, the success of this play. And he, there was some type of 80th birthday extravaganza for George Bernard Shaw and Shaw wanted Sherry Shong to be there. So I feel like that was, that was kind of a happy conclusion to this, to at least Sherry Shong's recognition in London. Yeah. Well, I might be speaking outside of my experience here a little bit, but I think, I think Shaw was much more into the, passage of ideas and the exposure of ideas and everything it's my understanding that the shaw estate uh for what it's worth i mean most of his works are getting in public domain now but before then they were very strict on if you're going to produce this there's nothing you can take out you have to speak every word in the script in order because if you don't the ideas are dropped Right, 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 right. <laughs> and and so, you know, if you're not, that's what the theater is. It's a place for ideas, according to Shaw. Uh, you're coming here to get this kind of dialogue and understand this kind of thing, regardless if you think it's obscene or not. That I can see that. I can see that draw to, I see what you're doing. You're trying to actually tell a story from your culture that relates to us here. I can see that. That's cool. I like that. Yeah, and I think like that um that's really true because I I wanted to see like when this play if it had ever been done again and mm. and it has like it had like a resurgence in the 50s and 60s and it seemed like it had been done in places that were going through like some type of like nation building crisis or I don't know so like places in Africa and it had been done in Israel and the last time I saw it had been performed was actually last year in Australia. So I don't think there's any nation building huh. stuff going on there, but it, no. had been, it had been used in the fifties and sixties and in Singapore too, because Singapore went through some crises in the, um, they were part of Malaysia. Well, they were a British colony, then they were part of Malaysia, then they became their own city state. And so I have friends that are from Malaysia and um, I mean, from Singapore, sorry. And mm-hmm. they said they they would study this Lady Precious Dream in school in the 60s. So, it's, yep, I, I can see that, too. I can absolutely see that where now it's becoming of a thing like it was done so many years ago. We don't know why we don't do it as as prevalently anymore. But uh, you do need to know about this story. You do yeah, need to like, understand that this is part of the canon. Ah, that's cool. Do you know the um, the I think it's um, Rogers and Hammerstein. Flower drum song. Flower drum song. So yes. I love flower drum song. And that, oh yeah, that was an all Asian. I mean, mostly an all Asian cast, at least mm-hmm. on Broadway. But the film, there was um, a Mrs. Liang in the film. She was an older character, and she was supposed to be played by Anna May Wong. So that would give <laughs> that would give the whole cast. They would all be Asian. Now some were Japanese and. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. But, but they were they were all Asian. But Anime Wong died right before the movie oh. started, you know, filming. Uh, filming. So yeah. they they hired like an African American woman who passed as Asian. Mm. <laughs> she was an yeah. actress. So she was like the only one who wasn't Asian in this in this um 
this right. film. But I, you know, I have the DVD. I mean, it's not really, it's kind of obsolete right yeah, now. Yeah, no. I, I, I love it. I love the songs. I love the costume. Mm-hmm. It's very like, kind of psychedelic 1960s. Yeah, you know, like, yeah. <laughs> I don't know a lot about it. I know that in recent years, it has been part of this discussion on who can play what parts. And there have been productions in the past where, yeah, on one hand, um, I talked about it a few episodes ago on my game show hosts episode, um, where one of the one of the game show hosts was in that original production. And these Asian people that were basically pulled off the street because they're like, we have to have Asian people. There are no Asian actors here. Um, he taught them how to act, which is kind of cool. But um, I know it has been problematic because they're like, ah, we'll just do it. And you go, right, yeah, right, but right. we don't have we don't have Asian people. That doesn't matter. We'll just, you know, get some costuming and and suggest uh politely with with absolute respect to the culture. And you're like, well. Uh, <laughs> that's, I don't know. That's exactly what's happening here. Um, yeah, exactly. But, yeah. yeah. So, wow. So that's why I, you know, I, I was drawn to Bernadine's story just because of this, um, the work that she did in Shanghai and seeing something mm-hmm. like Lady Precious Dream. And this is just one of the productions she did. Yeah. She did other ballets that had all Chinese, they were Chinese ballets, um, composed by a Russian Jewish swiss trained doctor but um well well, of course i mean i mean uh, you know she had that entire mishmash of people with all the people coming from the different concessions in 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 shanghai they're just yeah they're they're all just like we need a place to congregate that's amazing and all the dancers were chinese so because the the Ah! stories were from chinese folklore so that's you know just a little bit of the book and wow i I hope that it gives just a, a listeners a little taste oh of it. it absolutely oh my gosh so that's the story then huh we got oh Part of wow. it, yeah so just the, yeah. the oh. that, was, that was you know i think lady precious dream was probably the highlight of her time in shanghai and yeah. probably of her life i mean it was just it was so successful and i think people just felt heard and seen and yes they had a good yes. time they had a good yeah. time bring people together in her theater company she had borderline nazis working with like the soviet foreign minister's wife like they worked Mm -hmm. together to put on these productions and fundraise for them and they acted as ushers and it was was such a it was a time where shanghai was a big place of like you know there were communists and nationalists and spies and assassinations yeah it was very, very volatile, but the arts brought these people together. And I think like a lot of our, not to simplify things, but a lot of our mm-hmm. problems today could probably be solved by theater companies. <laughs> just, just sit down and see the same thing. This, oh, yes. Okay. End of the day. This is a huge part of my, my theatrical approach to things like uh, yes, there are shows that are pretty much escapist entertainment stuff, and there is a place and time for that. There are shows that are incredibly heavy and have deep messages that you should take away. Um, I think the theater's purpose is a gymnasium for the pathos. You know, it's basically you're going to exercise feelings you don't always exercise. And that includes a lot of things like, you know, we don't want to go see things about 
we don't want to go see plays about stuff we do every day. I mean, that is right. relatable. It is very relatable to watch a guy uh, go to a restaurant and they get his order wrong. And you're like, okay, I've had that happen to me before. And it is frustrating. It's not usual that a guy goes to a restaurant and a woman comes to his table and, and says, these men are going to kill me and you're the only person that can help me. You know, this is a scenario I came up with. I can't think of a play. There's probably a play that does that. But I mean, it's, it's, it, it, it's a place where we ask big questions. And this is this is the uh, Chekhov coming out in me. It's like, we don't have, we probably shouldn't be providing answers at the theater. We should be right, raising right. issues. We should be raising issues that you, the audience, all of these people from different perspectives have all watched the same thing. And you're going to go home and think about it in your purview. Exactly, exactly. And, and, and maybe, just maybe, you sit down and discuss those issues with people who didn't see it the same way you did. And, and that's, that's where synthesis comes from. You know, we go, okay, I see where you're coming from. I'm not coming from the same place. Where can we meet in the middle? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. I think that's, you know, it's so important. And I, I think, unfortunately, our like age of like quick reactions through cell phones or, you <laughs> know, social media, we're not thinking anymore. And we're just seeing and absorbing and we're being told kind of, you know, what to, cause these algorithms, you know, like you're, you're seeing, <laughs> you're seeing like the same things and it's hard to, I I worry about the critical thinking and in the theater, there is so mm. much, of that, you know, there's so yeah. much of that. Yeah. Ah, Bernadine, you've stolen my heart. And now I have the wonderful gift of another play I have to read, Lady Precious Stream. Sounds absolutely wonderful. And remember, listeners, this is just part of Bernadine's story. You can get the rest when you buy Susan's book, Bernadine's Shanghai Salon, wherever you get your books. It'll be available November 7th, 2023. And I want to take the opportunity to thank Susan and her publicist for reaching out to me. It was a truly enjoyable episode. And speaking of great new episodes, in two weeks, I'll have a favorite returning guest on the show, Brian Michael Jones. I got a really goofy topic to discuss with him, and lots of laughs are in store in the next episode. So, for now, I'll sign off. This has been Aaron Odom from Trident Theater, ending this episode of Euripides Humanities. Another episode will be in your ears in two weeks. See you at intermission.